0: Hi everyone, this is Dan Ballantyne. Uh, I am a Minnesota State Bar Association Certified Labor and Employment Specialist and the Chair of the Business Litigation Department of Larkin Hoffman. We thank you for joining us for this discussion uh, with me and my partner, Phyllis Karasov, who's also a MSBA Certified Employment and Labor Union expert regarding changes in the landscape of labor unions and union activity, not only in the midst of the COVID pandemic, but also how the union landscape may further change under the Joe Biden administration. So, Phyllis, uh, has the amount of union organizing been affected by the pandemic from your observation?
1: Absolutely. NLRB records indicate that the number of representation petitions that have been filed by labor unions seeking an election is down dramatically from each of the prior four years. Obviously, there's a lot of reasons for this downturn, which could include the fact that union organizers cannot personally meet with employees to discuss the reasons why a union is in their best interest. Also, many employees have already been laid off, so they are not um, going to be able to vote in an election, or perhaps they're afraid of being laid off and they just fear that if they start meeting or talking to union organizers, they, they're putting their situation in jeopardy or maybe their main priority at this point is just to survive, keep their jobs, keep healthy and meeting with the union and thinking about the union is just not one of their, their big priorities.
0: So does this downturn in union activity that you've described mean that private employers can let their guard down? because unions are losing support in the American workforce?
1: No, in fact, I would say it's the opposite. I think we're seeing a lot of signals that union activity is really going to have an uptick once the vaccine is available and employers are able to return to their previous production and service levels. Quite frankly, I think the impact of COVID-19 has only increased the number of reasons why employees may believe That a union is going to be helpful to them. So just a couple of thoughts about that. Many employees believe that their employer is not following or implementing adequate safety precautions and they think, oh if I had a union, a union will force my employer to be more safe and create a more safe environment. Um, Many employees complain that they're not given sufficient personal protective equipment Even if it's not required by OSHA, they still think that their employer should be doing more for them. Many employees who have either experienced layoffs or are fearful of a layoff think that if they have a union, that they will have more protection and that they don't have to be as concerned about a layoff. Employees also think they should be given more leeway in being able to take a leave of absence because they themselves are ill. Or they need to take care of a family member who is ill. Or they need to protect an employee, a family member who is more vulnerable if they get COVID. And now that it appears that the FFCRA is expired, I shouldn't say it appears. It has expired. However, Congress is allowing employers to voluntarily continue to provide FFCRA leave through March 31st. But many employees are going to think that they need more protection than that. We are also seeing a real increase in social activism in the post-George Floyd era. Um, I've had a lot of clients contact me about employees who are demanding that they be given paid time off to do volunteer work, that their companies should be more active in supporting organizations such as Black Lives Matter. They think overall their their employers should be more vocal and supportive of uh, racial justice. Many of these issues are not really wages, hours, and terms and conditions of employment over which an employer would be obligated to bargain with the union if a union were elected. However, unions are not telling their employees of that nuance and may be trying to convince the employees that if they were there, they could push the employer more to be involved in these social activism activities. Another item is hazard pay. Many employers are providing some type of hazard pay for their employees for working during COVID, but many are not. And employees think that if they have a union, they could get more support for hazard pay.
0: So uh, we've been talking just generally about union activity, I think globally across the country, but Phyllis, what about here in the Twin Cities, particularly, Uh, has there been anything unique about union activities here in the Twin Cities that you would call out?
1: Yeah. And of course, the Twin Cities have always been a very active area for union activity, but we we have seen some interesting developments, particularly in craft breweries and coffee houses and other service industries. Tattersall, a micro distillery in Minneapolis's northeast neighborhood. The employees have decided to unionize and have Unite Here Local 17 represent them. Tattersall- Initially posted a very anti-union statement on their social media page, but there was such a strong reaction from both employees and customers that they, they had to take that page down. And the management decided to back down from their very anti-union stance. There was even a picket line in front of Tattersaw. I, I heard there were like over 200 people on that picket line, far more than just employees. And the, the union did win that election. Spy House Coffee faced a union petition last spring and following that petition, they announced that they were closing and that they were for sale. Uh, There was a strike at at Spy House and um, I think, uh, I believe that the union has now voted to be represented at Spy House. Uh, Employees at Surly filed a petition seeking to have Unite Here Local 17 represent them. And in September, it was announced that Surly and the union were going to agree on a procedure for an election outside of the NLRB, which is permissible. And so that election went forward, even though Surly had already announced that they would be indefinitely closing their beer hall. So the union was elected, and so the union has had the right to negotiate about the impact of the closure on the employees. Then there's a couple of other very small distilleries where we have seen union activities, still hearts, Lawless, Fair State Co-op Brewery have all announced that they the employees have said they wanted to be represented by Local 17, and most of those breweries have voluntarily recognized uh, Local 17 as the collective bargaining representative. This past Monday, there was an article about how 200 Google workers have indicated that they have formed the Alphabet Workers Union, which would be an independent union. 200 Google workers is, of course, a drop in the bucket. But again, I think what we're seeing is that employees that traditionally would not have been interested in a union are now saying that they feel they need a union to work with a significantly large employer.
0: Phil, in light of this, uh, I guess, increase in union activity you described, what would you recommend employers do to prepare for it and prepare for potential union activity in their own shops once the pandemic is over?
1: Well, having positive human employee relations and human resources practices is really the fundamental issue in trying to combat employee interest in unions. So, a couple of suggestions. When an employer becomes aware that employees have particular concerns, they really should try to address those concerns. They shouldn't just ignore them. Employers don't always hold it against an employer when they disagree with the employer, but if they feel like they're being ignored, that's when they think that they need a third party. So try to avoid allowing an issue to fester because employees should know that they don't need a third party to get the attention of management. Employers should help their supervisors and managers to understand that they are a really important tool in uh, trying to avoid union activity. Um, They should try to develop positive relationships with the employees that they supervise. They should treat them with fairness and, and respect. Management should be visible. Management should get out of their ivory towers. They should walk around. They should know the names of their employees. They should walk through the workplace. They should also welcome employees to come into their office to talk to them. They shouldn't have a lot of barriers to that because again employees are going to feel they need a third party if they feel their opinions really don't matter supervisors should be trained on what can they say about labor unions when there's no petition on file there's a lot of flexibility for what supervisors can say about their own personal experiences, if they used to work in a union employee, as well as what what their feelings are about the need for a, a union or the lack of a need at their workplace. A lot of supervisors don't understand what they can and can't say. When there's no union petition on file, there is just so many things they can say in the appropriate context, of course. And I think that they need to feel comfortable in responding to questions or concerns from an employee about saying that union organizing is not in the best interest of the employees. And of course, because the union campaign process when you fi- they file with the NLRB is really short, employers should know in advance what the rules are so that they don't lose valuable time once that petition is filed in trying to figure out what the process is. Only 30% of the employees in a bargaining unit have to sign authorization cards indicating that they want the union to represent them in order for the union to file a representation petition. So that means that the union does not necessarily already represent 51% of the employees. And the employer has a narrow period within which they can campaign once that petition has been filed. And so the employer needs to understand what that process is so they are ready to go. Supervisors and managers should have their ears open, their eyes open, so that if they sense that the employees might be interested in the union, the employer can begin preparing for that because there is such a narrow time period at the NLRB.
0: I expect, Phyllis, things are going to be very different Uh, when we get out of this pandemic in the American workplace. Do you have any thoughts on how this is going to affect decisions made by the U.S. Department of Labor and or the National Labor Relations Board?
1: Well, what we saw once uh, Trump appointed members of the five person NLRB constitute a majority, we saw a dramatic reversal of many NLRB decisions that were issued under the NLRB appointed by President Obama. So I think we can expect that uh, once there is a majority of Democratic appointees to the NLRB, we're gonna see that pendulum swing back and there will be more decisions that are pro-employee and pro-union. The current general counsel of the NLRB, Peter Robb, has adopted many policies and issued many directives regarding the types of cases which regional offices should be pursuing. And I think we can expect that Peter Robb will be replaced by a general counsel who is far more interested in pursuing cases which protect labor unions and employees than did Peter Robb. Another change is there is a pending piece of legislation that is very uh, pro-union. It's called Protecting the Right to Organize Act of 2019, the PRO Act. And in February of 2020, the House of Representatives passed that statute. And if the Senate is controlled by the Democrats, then the Senate could also pass that legislation. And among other things, the PRO Act will make it much easier for a union to gain recognition once they file the petition. There's a lot of things in there about what the employer's rights are in negotiating a first collective bargaining agreement. And included in that statute is a requirement that if the first collective bargaining agreement is not achieved within one year from when the union was certified, that an arbitrator, a third party, would then decide the terms and conditions of employment. So obviously, the PRO Act could significantly alter the fundamental principles of labor law. Dan, what are your thoughts on changes to expect in the Department of Labor?
0: Well, it's hard to know for sure. Being a Democratic-controlled Senate, that certainly is going to help the Biden administration and the Democratic Party push through more of their ideals and their uh, plans, potentially, some of which, Phyllis, you've already walked through. Having said that, I would expect just with the the Biden administration that pre-Trump pushes at the Department of Labor are probably going to be revived. For example, this could include a renewed push to further increase the minimum wage. I believe in the past, $15 an hour has been discussed as about it on the Democrat side as a proposed federal minimum wage requirement, I would expect that may be resurrected. We may see a push for a further limitations on overtime exemptions or increasing the requirements further for overtime exemptions. Many of you will recall there was a push to increase the minimum salary to approximately $50,000, which ended up getting paired back to the mid-30s. Uh, that could be potentially resurrected for a higher salary, for example there's likely gonna be other pro-employee efforts as well. One other possibility, as many of you know, the FFCRA, the, the benefits of a paid leave due to COVID related issues, expired on December 31st, as Phyllis already mentioned. Uh, that was not extended into 2021. However, that's possible the Biden administration could try to resurrect that and, and get that through for a, an increased FFCRA benefits in 2021. In addition, the Department of Labor previously published a joint employer standard that they wish to use. And let me explain briefly. This whole issue of joint employer comes into play. For example, you may have seen it in the Uber cases with Uber drivers has been one that's made the news. There was also a case involving McDonald's with the, the question of whether employees of a franchisee of McDonald's also being an employee or joint employee of McDonald's, the corporation. Those are situations where a Biden administration and potential legislation passed under the Biden administration, make it easier to find joint employee or joint employer status of these types of employees, where certain uh, corporate structures like franchises, where they've been able to keep franchisors separate and not employers, could fall by the wayside. And that could have some pretty big effects in, in terms of the business landscape in the country. I also expect that the Biden administration will rescind President Trump's executive order concerning federal contractor training that involves race or sex stereotyping or scapegoating. The uh, OFCCP has published guidance on the implementation of this executive order, and I expect that uh, under President Biden, that executive order from President Trump might be rescinded that's all the comments we have. I want to thank everybody for listening to this discussion of the impact of COVID-19 on union organizing and worker activism. I thank Phyllis Karasov for her insights. As always, if you have questions, issues that you need addressed relating to these issues or any employment-related issues or union-related issues, please keep Larkin and Hoffman in mind. Thank you for attending.
1: Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure to discuss what to expect so that employers can begin to plan for the post-COVID environment.